so I'll be honest with you, we have a few photographs of the period of, of the riders and know and understand some of the stops that they may have taken. But the true narrative of their experience of the ride and the story of their ride is, is not very well known. I love when an adventure eludes or, or is carrying on something from the from history. You know, we, we often run across stories of people who discover a magazine or discover this article somewhere or uh, a story that someone from their family of something wild they did. And people recreate that adventure in modern times. Well, for Danny here, a friend of mine, Daniela Ochoa Diaz, oh, she goes by Danny for folks that know her, uh, she was recently a part of one of those adventures uh, where a group of five black women rode bicycles from Harlem in New York City all the way to Washington, D.C. in 65 hours. That's 250 miles. And the story they came across was of five black women that did this in 1928. Unfortunately, at the time, there wasn't a lot of press about the story for reasons you can probably guess. But in the one article that was written about this, when the women were asked why they did this, they said simply for the love of the great out of doors, which is literally adventure, literally why we do this show. And I, I just love the story. I love the audacity of what they did. They rode 100 miles two of the three days, uh, did sightseeing, took plenty of time to explore the cities, explore natural areas. As you can imagine, the route wasn't nearly as built up as it is today. And fast forward all the way to 2021, uh, Danny and four of her friends, uh, all black women as well, decided to do this same route, the same ride in honor of what they're calling the 1928 Legacy Tour. And it's my hope that by the time 100 years after 1928 comes around, so if you do the math, pretty simple, 2028, uh, this could be a really big thing. This could be a thing that we do. And it's 250 miles, 65 hours, essentially about two and a half, three days. Let's make something happen. Let's do this. Uh, but we'll have to talk about that, Danny. But anyway, let's get into the episode. But right before we do, I did want to make you aware uh, that we are, um, you know, with any adventure like this, Money can be tight, gear is expensive, and anytime you have the ability to reuse gear or buy used gear, uh, I really encourage you to do that. And the folks at Rerouted make that super simple. And you can find out about them at rerouted.co. And it's just basically a platform to help you buy and sell used gear. I can't tell you how much of the stuff I own is used. Vast majority of what I own uh, is used equipment. Just because I believe that, you know, this stuff is made quality, it should last a long time, and folks use it for a time, and, you know, life changes. You can't necessarily use it forever, and so there's plenty of folks out there selling really good stuff at a very reasonable price, and keep some money in your pocket, put some money in theirs, and keep stuff out of landfills. So I love the work that Rerouted is doing, and I would really love it if you uh, you just chose to support them. They've been supporting us for, for a while now, so, so I can't thank them enough and i 100 percent wholly believe in what they're doing it makes adventures like this more possible but that's enough of me talking let's get into the episode all 
All right, folks, welcome to Without Compromise. Today, you heard a little bit about Daniela's story in the intro, but I wanted to welcome her officially, Daniela Ochoac-Diaz. Did I say everything right? You sure did. Oh, that's awesome. How are you doing today? I am doing so good. I'm so happy to be here and get a chance to talk to you. Um, and also, it's just so gorgeous and scorching hot outside. I can't help but be smiling and glad that I'm inside for the for the afternoon. So where are you coming from so folks know? So um, I am currently based in Washington, D.C., but I'm originally from Venezuela. Oh, that's awesome. Well, tell us about, you know, growing up. Did you grow up in Venezuela, by the way? I did. Okay. I sure did. Well, tell us about that. What what kind of things were you into? What was what was childhood like there? And then, you know, when, when did you come over to the States? Um, so childhood there was amazing. Um, and that, you know, I grew up in Caracas, which is a city that's hugged by a valley of mountains. And right on the other side of the valley is the Caribbean, uh, Caribbean waters and Caribbean beaches. So I grew up drinking fresh coconut, uh, coconut water from the coconuts and then eating them, um, going to the beach every weekend. Cause that was my mom's favorite way of tiring out her only child. <laughs> and I, you know, my family from my mom's side lives close to the border with Colombia, And there's just an immense amount of rivers that are, that are crossing those borderlands. And I used to go to the rivers and swim in the rivers and go down the currents with my cousins all the time um, when I was a little kid. So I, I literally grew up as a water baby. Um, and I immigrated to the United States in 1994. I moved to Philadelphia, which is my American hometown. And I have very strong loyalties to Philly. I'm I'm 100% loyal to Philly and, and live in DC and love DC very much and have done a lot of work to build in the DC community. But you know, Philly's where the heart is when it comes to the U S two very different places, coastal completely. Venezuela and Philly. <laughs> <laughs> completely, completely. You know, I remember watching American TV shows that had been dubbed in Spanish and you'd see people coming out of the grocery stores with their paper bags. And we never had paper bags back home. And when I moved to the States, I was obsessed with these paper bags. And the fact that Trader Joe's has them all the time now just kind of makes the little girl in me really happy. <laughs> it's the little so it's, things. It's the little things, it's, right? <laughs> it's, it's the little things for little Danny that immigrated to the States. Oh, that's awesome. So, so you said you were a water baby. And you also mentioned before we started recording that you had a really good swim today. Was, was swimming a big part of life or was it... You know, just, yeah. just being near water and you've just always been a swimmer. What, what, what was that like? Yeah. So uh, water has always been a part of my life, be it because I grew up in Caribbean waters or when I was traveling to my mom's hometown, like I said, uh, going to swim in the rivers with my family. But like, obviously, when I moved to Philly, that was a big transition. Um, and literally, although I've swam in the Schuylkill as an adult once, uh, Philly doesn't have like much, at least to my knowledge, areas at the time that I immigrated that I could go swimming in that weren't going to the beaches in the shores. So, it, I mean, they're completely different worlds. Uh, and when I became a teenager, we moved to South Florida, where again, I had access to Caribbean water and beaches. So, uh, you know, I joined at the time my high school swim team. 
And we would have open water swims at the beach and pool training to do. So ultimately, that just was a continuation of, you know, my mom's tradition of going to the beach every weekend now turned into a high school competitive swimming. And that's how more organized and structured swimming became a part of my life, which ultimately then became my entry sport into triathlon. Yeah, I was going to say, I know you more as a cyclist. You participated in uh, the coast-to-coast bike ride last year, which was just crazy. <laughs> it was amazing. It, it was, was awesome. Amazing. It, it was the highlight of 2020 for sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was, so that's all I've known you as, as a cyclist. So it's interesting to hear that that was your entry sport, swimming. Absolutely. And I'll give you a fun fact. I used to be a competitive figure skater for about eight years in South Florida. Wow, that's that's really cool. I didn't realize that. Um, you just never know till you get to talking to people what just might be going <laughs> on. Um, well, well, when you shared the news about this this most recent adventure for you, the nineteen twenty eight Legacy Ride or Legacy Tour, I, I just was blown away by the story, blown away by the backstory, um, and kind of how it was discovered and all that. How did you find out about this? Who informed you and how did you get involved in this ride? Yeah, so I have a really good friend whose name is uh, Keisha Roberson. And Keisha uh, is known for coaching track in Washington, D.C. She, you know, has an open track practice that brings together people from a lot of different running clubs across the city to just run track. And it's called Track Tuesdays. And ultimately, she, you know, entered into the triathlon space at some point uh, within the last, I want to say, five to six years. And she um, was exposed to this story, I believe, listening to a podcast. And ultimately, she learned of uh, the story of Mary Lou Jackson, uh, Velma Jackson, Ethel Miller, Leola Nelson, and Constance White, who um, ultimately did a trip from Harlem to Washington, D.C. over three days, and it's a 250-plus mile tour. Ultimately, these incredible black women who did this in 1928 with bikes from 1928, the gear of 1928, but also the circumstances of the time in the late 1920s for black women who ultimately loved the sport of cycling and decided to do this bike ride. We see photos of them dressed in winter-like garments that are that look very heavy and the determination and the love of the outdoors would just be like the circumstances that are what they are and nothing will stop us from you know doing this and being outside and just loving the outdoors and where we are and so ultimately um when Keisha learned of this experience and learned that the riders wanted to challenge other people to do this in less time she literally picked up their challenge in 2021 and was like, this is the year this is going to happen. So ultimately, at the close of 2020 and or beginning of uh, 2021, Keisha did uh, an open call and was like, you know, I, I want to put together a group of people who are 
willing to train to do a ride like this that's going to be a community ride that centers and amplifies this buried legacy and that centers you know sisterhood athleticism and the love of the outdoors um and i think part of the goal of the ride was you know also to heal from historical uh and present day trauma experience in outdoor spaces for Black people and and Black women as well. She wanted it to be incredibly inclusive. um, So over time, selected a a pace range that would allow riders that are just now falling in love with cycling and have that be an opportunity that they can can jump on and enjoy. So the average uh, pace for the ride was uh, explicitly 13 miles per hour so that we could have a varied amount of riders with us. It was, you know, and the thing about 13 is that, you know, there are parts where, you know, people will go a little bit faster, but like ultimately the goal was to be together. And if there's discomfort or if somebody has, you know, a cramp for some reason or whatever the reason may be, the goal is still to be together and to come together and troubleshoot and show up for each other and deepen that, uh, sisterhood and relationship as we roll through, you know, some challenging terrain. How how much about the original ride did y'all know going into it in the sense of what they experienced, what they saw and what they went through? So if I'm not mistaken, the ride was originally recorded only in black newspapers at the time and covered by black newspapers at the time. Um, And those clippings of those newspapers are incredibly hard to find, but there was a historian that found their information and found the story of of their tour. So I'll be honest with you, we have a few photographs of the period of of the riders and know and understand some of the stops that they may have taken. But the true narrative of their experience of the ride and the story of their ride is, is not very well known. And that information, I don't particularly think is easy to find. Um, so I think there, the researcher that originally found some of this information had mainly the photographs and some, some snippets of these black newspapers that may have covered it, but it's not, you know, a real full story. We don't have that full story and we don't have access to it. So in trying to honor their legacy, you know, we, we centered them the whole time, but in reality, we don't, we don't have all the information about what their experience may have really been like. And for me, one of the things I think about is like, while the North was free in some ways, like traveling and what, what did restroom stops look like? What did stopping for food look like? Where was it safe for them to 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 take pauses and rest uh, from from this endurance ride, and what did it look like to even plan that right? And I'll be honest with you, um, I think that that's exactly what happened throughout the ride. Um, you know, there were some some really challenging moments. We had this ride took place this year during Memorial Day weekend. And for folks who live in the Northeast, they may remember that that weekend in particular was known for some incredible amounts of rain. 
and lower temperatures that weren't expected after having had a certain amount of like heat buildup and like it's starting to feel like the summer in the middle of May. By the time that we were riding on our first day, um, where we started in Harlem, come around 1 p.m. or 2 p.m., the weather began to change and it started to rain. And we were riding from 2 p.m. on until 9 p.m. that day. Just to paint a picture of what that weekend was like, the first day we were riding in the rain, I want to say for about six to seven hours, maybe six hours. Oh, geez. What was, what was that like? I've never ridden in it that long. I had to be. So, yeah, I think mental, mentally, I think at the end of the first day, it wasn't even the mileage that we covered, but it was the weather conditions that made us wonder whether we were going to keep going. And the second day then added on to some of those challenges as well, because not only was it raining, um, but the temperatures then started to be between 54 and 56, which when you're riding and you're feeling that breeze and you're wet for an extended period of time, you know, you're keeping your body warm because you're moving it, but it feels as though your body temperature is just perpetually dropping. And when you stop moving, your temperature keeps dropping. It's kind of like when you finish a yoga class and you do that cool down and you feel your body cooling, but much more intensified. Um, and I think one of the main realizations is that waterproof products are only waterproof for so long. So we were, honestly, we were soaked and we were exhausted, but we were so happy to have had accomplished the first day, which was the day that included the longest mileage with the first day we did, um, we did about 122 miles. Holy cow. 122 miles on day one. Mm -hmm. That's a long day in the rain too. Oh my God. Yeah. The, the rain was wild. And we rode, uh, we do, we, we rode, um, a trail in, uh, New Jersey, which was stunning, but that trail had very light gravel and by very light, I mean, very thin gravel that wore down the, the, the brakes of a lot of the bikes that were with us. So we had some challenges the next day where we needed to find a mechanic in a state that, uh, in Delaware, um, that needed to come to our house to service our bikes because bike shops, as you know, during the pandemic, not only are they low in finding parts, but they're also jammed with the amount of bikes that they're servicing. So on the second day, we had multiple, uh, decisions, major decisions to make about the ride as a result of one, uh, seeing the weather and recognizing that it was going to be raining the whole day, um, recognizing that the bikes for safety needed to be maintenance. And, uh, well, uh, a few miles after the start of the ride, uh, several of us fell on, uh, trail tracks of which I was one, um, the first one. And I wound up hitting my head on a rail track and, uh, didn't know it at the time but wound up with a concussion, a mild concussion. And I was fortunate to be surrounded by an incredible group of athletes and a physical therapist whose name is Brianna Hurt, who, um, while they knew that my heart and my soul was in the ride and my desire to finish the whole 150, um, they advised me to, 
to to stop riding. And it was an interesting uh, kind of mental rabbit hole to cognitively understand what they're telling me. And in my body, I felt like I could keep going. But then I also knew that things weren't 100% normal. <laughs> and it's like, how do you have this narrative with yourself where you're just literally exploring, okay, well, I need to sit with this and I can't continue. But I'm physically prepared to do it and had my, my ambitions and my goals and my focus. I think I would have probably wanted to keep riding. But again, I was surrounded by such a great group of people that I, I, I realized I had to stop. Um, and originally I kept thinking if I, if I stop riding today and I join them tomorrow, it'll still be, it'll still be great. But I wound up waking up with an immense amount of whiplash and not being able to, to complete the ride, but ended up supporting the riders as they continue to tackle such a difficult journey. Because once you enter Maryland, you're starting to enter a very hilly terrain, entering Baltimore and then leaving Baltimore it's in, it's quite hilly on the way back into Philadelphia. So ultimately, the last day was going to have some of the hardest hills for the riders to tackle. And with the lingering headaches starting to settle in that Sunday, and then more strongly the Monday of Memorial Day weekend, I realized that it was the right decision to to completely stop and and then get medical care in due time. But the girls ultimately wound up riding in the rain and, you know, I think had their most challenging day on the second day because losing a rider in, in a tight knit group of five riders is, is really difficult, right? To be concerned about the health and the, the well-being of a rider and all of the unknowns that might happen with the rain not stopping and the temperature staying relatively low. They were incredible troopers to collect themselves after the bikes got repaired, which again felt like this incredible feat <laughs> to have to have uh, a mechanic be able to support us in the middle of a pandemic and come to a house to actually help us repair the bikes. So it was it was powerful. I remember the start of the third day; the energy was so strong because they recognize how much closer they were to, to this goal and to, and the determination to, to take on the third day was just so powerful and so beautiful. I wore my kit on the third day, even though I was in the car providing support and, uh, helped welcome the girls into the district to close the ride. The, the weather, the terrain, the hills, the, the concussion, incredibly, challenging things to overcome and to get through and and even on you know on, on a three-day ride so much can happen so many things can can go wrong or can and and good things can happen too like you can see your community really come out there for you um, and a mechanic show up out of nowhere and people you know cheer you on or or, or ask you about the experience how present in y'all's mind was the the original team the original five black women that rode this route almost a hundred years ago. How much were y'all talking about that and thinking about that and what they must've gone through? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. I 
I will tell you that at the end of day one, once we started to get into Philadelphia, thinking about them became the guiding source because it started to get dark. Um, everybody's technology was running low on battery. And ultimately we just like huddled and rode like a, like a tiny five cyclist Peloton. And we're just at that point, several people had taken different types of falls. Thankfully nobody had concussions from those falls that day, but like we were in awe one, the roads that we were riding in and like the trails that we were riding in felt like an absolute privilege in comparison to the way that the geography looked like for uh, these women to do this ride in 1928. I mean, and then the gear that we were wearing, you know, we are able to wear gear that's light, that's tailored to to our bodies. We were able to be clipped in if some of us were clipped in and some of us weren't for the ride, um, have much lighter bikes. It was just, it's, it's incredible the strength that these women had taking on this endurance tour, uh, in, in, in 1928. And also in addition, the mileage that they covered on their first and second day, um, was higher than the ones that we covered. And it was hard to not think of them the whole time. Like I, I, I've been saying that the legacy really carried us through um, because there were p points in that ride that were really challenging where I think people who ride all the time who are very strong riders wouldn't even engage with, you know, riding in the rain for that extended period of time, you really have to be focused on achieving a, a, a goal and surrounded by incredible people to really commit to doing that. I think it was more powerful than we expected when we were even planning it. That is, it's it's unbelievable they were able to get that done. It's a, it's something hard to do today to ride that totally. many miles in that distance through those cities. What, what do you think the group, what did you learn and what do you think the group learned the most from this experience? At least for me, what I learned the most about this experience is that sisterhood is so powerful and like that, that collective determination to achieve the goal we set out for ourselves, regardless of the circumstances while acknowledging that the circumstances were very difficult, um, was incredibly powerful because it makes you feel and know that you in good company can achieve what you are, what you have your eyes set on. What's incredible about it is that I think those relationships are going to be lifelong. I think it's really difficult to go through an experience like that and not look at that person and, and be like, you understand a part of me that I don't think a lot of people <laughs> haven't seen, which is 121 miles of exhaustion and wet and just being like, you understand and how getting we a concussion at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you understand you yeah, you understand my goals and you're here to to be a part of these goals and we are going to achieve this together because this is our shared goal. But also I think part of what I learned is the beauty of centering legacy and how that can 
thinking about our ancestors and thinking about the achievements of incredible people before us can really carry us through uh, some hard times, um, recognizing that they also face hard times in, in very different ways. Um, so it made me think of how far we've come and how far we have yet to go in terms of social justice, but also the importance of honoring legacy and, and surrounding yourself by, by people who have crazy ideas and beautiful goals. <laughs> crazy ideas and beautiful goals. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Something we say on the show a lot is crazy ideas, but not beautiful goals. It, so, so speaking of beautiful goals, you know, this was, um, almost a hundred years ago, but not, not quite a hundred years ago. Do you, do you think this will become, I know we were talking a little bit before, but I, I I'm setting you up here. Do you think this will become something that's annual and something for folks to be a part of, or, or, or do you, do you not yeah. know? Yeah. So, you know, Keisha put this together under the umbrella of major Knox adventures, which is a project that she's launched and major Knox, um, is doing different kinds of tours throughout the year. Uh, there is an amazing tour that goes to Cambridge, Maryland to see uh, the history of Harriet Tubman, which is one that is forthcoming this summer. But Major Knox will be uh, hopefully bringing this ride back. And in all honesty, this was just the the beginning. Um, I'm assuming and hopeful that in 2028, when it'll be the full century since this, this ride was first done, um, that we'll be having a, a, a big 2028 ride, um, to honor the hundred year and the hundred year anniversary of, of this legacy. So major Knox will have definitely other events taking place this year. You should definitely check out their Instagram page. And Keisha is, you know, an incredible human being who again, is just full of beautiful ideas that marry history and the present. And I would be remiss in saying, you know, one of the goals of the trip is to heal from historical and present day trauma experienced in outdoor spaces. And part of what was so beautiful about this ride is that along the way and along different stops, different people who were following us and our, were following our journey and trajectory would come to the stopping points and bring us snacks and bring us food or just come by and say hello and bring water and come to take pictures and meet us and express their appreciation. And people brought their kids to introduce them to us. We had a really sweet uh, twins that are five-year-olds that wanted to interview us to talk about the ride. I mean, and teachers who started teaching their kids in school about what we were doing. It was just really moving to see the groundswell of interest around this. So Keep your eye on Major Knox because there are definitely some really incredible uh, adventures developing in that space. So inspiring, literally carrying on the legacy of what these incredible women did almost 100 years ago, despite the state of the world then. Unbelievable. Let me ask you some rapid fire questions. We do this at the end of each show where it's just a, a few questions. Let's do it. Okay, cool. Well, speaking of goals, what, what, what is the biggest goal you haven't yet achieved? I will say riding the hills of Mallorca in, uh, in the Balearic Islands in Spain is something that I want to be prepared to do. And Patagon Mantra, which is uh, an, 
an Ironman length triathlon in Patagonia um, in South America. Those are two big athletic goals for me. And in life, I will say continuing to work on social justice and working to move the needle forward. I have no doubt you will achieve all of that. What, what would you say your uh, proudest achievement is, athletic or otherwise? Uh, proudest achievement is doing my work, which is uh, advocating for reproductive health rights and justice in Congress. That's incredible. Is there a daily habit you stick to that for health or something you stick to to really help you kind of make the most out of, out of the day? I think for me, that healthy habit is there's a mantra that I have that I use during my half Ironman in Atlantic City, which is where I first learned about athletic um, that carried me through that race. And I and I use it still every day, which I which it, the mantra is I am here. I am now I am enough. And that mantra, when at the start of the day, helps me helps me center and ground myself in my skin and who I am and what I'm about to embark on, be it a, a challenging workout or a challenging meeting. I love that mantra. Thank you. What would you say you're most curious about right now outside of uh, outside of work and outside of training for your upcoming Ironman? I am most curious about one figuring out nutrition <laughs> and two and two really managing those mental blocks that will come during the marathon. I've never ran a marathon before in my life and I am intimidated by it and also in the back of my head feel like I can definitely conquer it. So I'm wondering how to bridge the intimidation and the confidence. Oh, that's awesome. Let's see, two more and then we'll uh, we'll wrap up. What would you say your favorite athletic brew and beer is? I am very ready for this question. <laughs> and I and and your social media person probably knows this. They'll be if they listen to this, they'll know the answer if they know my account name. Um, <laughs> my favorite beer from Athletic Brewing is hands down the Soul Sour. My god, that was the most refreshing. I I never knew I liked sour beer until I had the Soul Sour and I am just waiting for the day where Bill and John are like this is going to be the beer that we sell all year. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then I'll be honest with you, um, I never get tired of Upside Dawn and the Hazy. Both of those are like staples for for a good time. My taste buds just love them. Uh, that's that's a that's good because Upside Dawn is is like that. They're there for me anytime I need them. They're that they've got my back, you know. And and you can find them easily. Exactly, they're always there for you. So, you know, at Athletic Brewing, we, we are, our slogan, something we say all the time is it was, we have to brew without compromise. Uh, but in order to do that, it takes living without compromise. And this whole community is filled with people like yourself that live without compromise. What does it mean to you to live without compromise? Oh my God, it's freedom. Um, it's total freedom. I cannot express to what extent it's total freedom. I mean, to be training the way that we, I've been training 
um, and to be able to crack open a nice cold brew after a hard workout and have no setbacks as a result is, you know, no dehydration, no hangovers, no, nothing to the, to the likes for me personally as well. My body doesn't process sugar as well as it once did. And so for me at times, uh, drinking may also come with like levels of anxiety as a result of my body having the shock of processing that sugar that I could not be happier to be free of completely uh, as a result of, of living without compromise. And for me, it's, it's freedom to live that way. And I, and I love it. First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.